Welcome, everyone. Ramen Borsellino is funny. <laughs> and his that work is of- very, uh, very subjective, but thank you. Yes, thank you for interrupting. <clears throat> and his work allows other people to be funny as well. By the way, I'll be letting people in. So if my eyes are darting back and forth, it's not for any other reason than I'm trying to do all kinds of things at once here. Anyway, I've known Raman since he was a little guy when his mom, Reka Basu, moved to Des Moines to become an opinion writer for the Des Moines Register. Reka's on the call, too. His dad, Rob Borsellino, and brother Raj followed, and we've been a part of each other's lives ever since, thankfully. So I can attest... Safe driving mode. Safe driving. Your video is... There we go. Sorry about that. Anyway, he's a graduate of Roosevelt High School and now lives in Hollywood, California, and he's living the dream jokesters long for. So what's it like to be Roman Borsellino these days? Go ahead. Well, thank you so much. What a great introduction. Sorry for uh, interrupting, but that means you can interrupt me at any given time. Um, so you have, uh, you have an interrupt free card. Uh, <laughs> Yes, as uh, you know, as Julie mentioned, I, I first of all, I will start off by acknowledging the fact that I am a product of nepotism. Both of my parents uh, being writers, uh, as I'm sure uh, many of you know, you know, my late father had this unique uh, ability to tap into the human condition and make people feel seen and heard. I think in a way that few others do. Uh, my mom has spent her uh, long um, and successful career covering human rights abuses. Across our state, country, and abroad, um, and then I uh, recently wrote a sketch about um, if there was uh, an eco-friendly plastic surgeon who uses like cabbage heads for butt implants um, and uh, other hilarious things like that. So I'm glad that all three of us have made uh, incredible contributions to the world of writing, and I'm just so honored to be mentioned in the same breath uh, as them. So uh, look, I. Uh, want to, first of all, I'm very excited to be here. It is such an honor. Julie uh, Gamick is one of my many heroes. So uh, thank you for letting me be a part of this. I want to do a couple things today. I want to uh, refer to a few things that I mentioned in um, the article I wrote for Julie's Substack uh, about the writer's strike. I want to expand on a few things that there weren't necessarily time to get into. And then I want to talk about some developments that have happened in the strike uh, since, uh, since I wrote about that a few weeks ago. And then most importantly, I want to take questions, uh, from you guys, um, because I obviously live in a bubble and things that may seem common, many acronyms and whatnot, uh, about, uh, about the, the world of writing and striking, uh, are not common to everyone. And so I want to, I want to give my own take. I don't speak for anyone but myself. I want to make this very clear clear uh, that I am just a very lowly unemployed writer who is not in any sort of leadership position in the Writers Guild. So take it with a grain of salt. Um, look, the big, the big picture items, as I mentioned in my piece with the strike, I think maybe two of the biggest things are residuals. That's one and AI are another. Uh, residuals, of course, being that through the streamers, they no longer have to pay writers uh, for views, for reruns, because they don't share that information. We have no uh, idea um, how many times something's getting watched once we've written it. 
So that is really, I think, crippling a lot of writers' abilities to make a livelihood because residuals are a large part of how they make their money when they stay, um, when they are often unemployed throughout most of the year. Another um, piece is the AI. Uh, I think anyone in this call um, is probably concerned about their own lives being affected by AI in one way or another. That is especially the case uh, for writers. Uh, AI can just crank out scripts and the Writers Guild uh, is pushing back against concerns that uh, writers can pretty much be obliterated uh, in, in a few years and that technology can do everything. And so while this is causing a lot of pain to writers right now and to others, the goal is uh, that in the long run, uh, we are fighting against things like uh, things that could be very existential threats. I mentioned that I write sketches. Uh, I am what you would classify as a variety writer. So that falls into mostly the late night comedy category. Things like The Daily Show. Um, I'm drinking from a James Corden mug right now, a variety show that just went off the air, which is actually a frankly ominous sign for, uh, for the variety show profession. But the thing about variety show writers is we are, um, it's a year round, it's often a year round profession because we respond to the news of the day. When you turn on your TV at night and watch Fallon or Seth Meyers before bed, um, you know, you hear jokes that were written that day. So variety writers are hired on 13 week, um, 13 week contracts. So that means that I have that job security for 13 weeks. And I, uh, I, unless I do something egregious, will not, you know, be fired or let go. I'm, they're not allowed to do that for 13 weeks. That alone is not that comforting, knowing that in, you know, a couple months, they're going to reassess every 13 weeks, they're going to reassess uh, my work and decide if they want to keep me on or not. Um, that is already bad. What the AMPTP, the producers union that, or I don't know if it's union, the producers who are fighting against want to do in their newest contracts is they want to change variety writers' um, contracts to, and I'm not exaggerating this, daily. They want to make us into what are called day players. So that means that they want to eliminate 100% of job security for us, that every single day there is a concern that if you show up to work and maybe don't make quite the jokes that you were hoping to or don't have as good of a day, you may not have a job the next day. That is one of many, many things uh, that we are fighting against. It's a little less sexy because it only applies to a sort of small subsection of writers. But I wanted to mention that both how it affects me personally and to give you a picture uh, of the fact that there's so many more minute things beyond the, the AI and the residuals and the things that you hear a lot about. Um, so in terms of the state of the strike, uh, this is both an interesting and an ominous figure, and I may not get it 100% right, but I am certainly in the ballpark. In the first three to four weeks of us striking, we already cost the studios um, the amount of money that we writers are asking for over the course of three years. So we have already had such an impact that we cost them what we want for three years and means that what we're doing is to some degree working, 
it also means that that money is completely going to waste and that the studios are okay with just straight up wasting the money that we're asking for because they have such big plans to cost us so much over the years that three years writer salary is absolutely nothing to them. So that's really what we're up against. And that is, uh, you know, scary that so much money is such a drop in the bucket to them and it's still not enough for them to move the needle just yet. In terms of these pickets, um, which is, you know, every day from nine to one and then from one to 5 p.m., they want us outside uh, one of the studios, Universal, Disney, Netflix, uh, Warner Brothers with our picket signs chanting. Um, and it's interesting because for us, these are a great way to call attention. We get a lot of honks. We shame people publicly. Um, they are a good rallying cry. It's interesting because we want them to be as fun as possible because we want enthusiasm and we want energy uh, and we want to show this is a, a cause that we're all in it together and we're excited to fight for our worth. At the same time, we have to walk a very fine line because we don't want it to look like it's just some party where we're all out here having a great time. The fact is nobody wants to be doing this. Um, we'd all rather be making money inside having a real job. So again, it is a fine line that we have to walk. And I think we've really seen creativity out in full force. Uh, we've seen a lot of musicians um, do surprise uh, concerts on the picket lines. Uh, this is so embarrassing to say, so I don't know why I'm saying it, but I always show up to a picket on an empty stomach because there's always gonna be free food. Um, I can only drink like one cup of coffee a day or I get the jitters. So if I'm going to a picket, I don't drink coffee because oftentimes there's like cool artisanal coffee trucks there and I want to get it there. So I think that speaks for a lot of writers because, um, you know, we are not, uh, I think any writers on this uh, can tell you, you know, you don't do it for the money. So uh, a free meal is never the worst thing in the world. <laughs> Again, I say that kind of jokingly, but it is minor things like that, that like, you know, give little incentives and, and make a, a tough situation sometimes a little more, a uh, little more bearable. That said, we have to do this for months on end. We are a month into the strike. I think there is very valid concern that this strike will go on for a minimum of three months, but very possibly more than that. And you've already seen over the past month, things just aren't as enthusiastic as any as with anything in life, it starts to wear off a little bit. And so the big question is, how are we going to continue this? And how are we going to maintain that energy and that enthusiasm and really keeping pressure on these folks that we're up against, you know, throughout the summer, especially in LA, when you hit late July, it's gonna be 100 degrees out. So to expect hundreds, thousands of people out there marching every day in 100 degree weather every single day, it's going to be really tough. Um, another thing I mentioned in the piece is this sort of stereotype of writers in Hollywood being wealthy elitists uh, that are being greedy by asking for tens of thousands of dollars more um, with these strikes. And that's, again, just something I want to talk a little bit more about. Um, I made sure to uh, wear a t-shirt and not put on a fun background so that you can see the sad little uh, writer's life that I live here in LA. Um, I am not exactly living in, my mom is shaking her head right now because she is like, you're embarrassing the entire family uh, by 
uh, doing this little poverty porn um, bit. Uh, but, uh, but, but seriously, you know, I, I have a shared housing situation. Um, most of my friends are, we're just struggling to be in the middle class and writers do get paid a decent amount compared to other professions, uh, at least Hollywood writers compared to other professions. And that's thanks to the writers guild. But a couple things I want to stress. One is that most writers are only employed a fraction of the year. It is a system set up so that um, if you are lucky, you will get a paid writer's room job and that will last, I think, usually at absolute most um, half the year, if it's like a good solid sitcom, often less than that. Um, but that money needs to then last you the entire year. And so it's things like residuals, it's things like very solid pay when you do have a job that are so important. And I think, again, like in LA, it's very hard to get a job if you don't have things like agents, managers, a lawyer. Uh, so I have an agent uh, and a manager. Each of them get 10% of that. So I'm already automatically out the gate, whatever I make, giving away 20% of my earnings. So factor that into you know how much money we're actually taking home. Um, a couple more things before I, uh, I take questions. Uh, solidarity. So I mentioned this in the piece again, um, a lot of what writers are doing is incumbent on the help of other groups. Uh, there is a big possibility that the Screen Actors Guild will go on strike too. They are currently taking a, a vote that could determine whether or not their bargaining committee um, has the power to declare a strike against the same people we're up against. And I hope they get a fair deal. I don't think anyone wants them to get screwed like us. But if they were to go on strike, I think that would be a major boon to the writers. Because if you've got us and actors saying we cannot and will not work, uh, that really shuts Hollywood down. So that's something you all, I think, if you're interested in this, should look at and see what's happening with the Screen Actors Guild. And if they declare a strike within the next few weeks, that could very well wrap this whole thing up soon for for both our unions. There's also the Directors Guild. They made a deal yesterday with um, the AMPTP, which again, we, we don't know the specifics of it yet. I'm happy they got a fair deal, assuming they got a fair deal. At the same time, sure, it may have been a little helpful if they were also joining us in a strike. But again, we just want, want what's best for everyone. Uh, as some of you might've seen, uh, David Zaslov, who I think we have, um, very correctly identified him as one of the corporate villains uh, who is all about eliminating our jobs and pinching pennies whenever possible. Uh, he's the head of, um, uh, he oversees HBO and Discovery and uh, he spoke at uh, the Boston University commencement speech and got booed while he was speaking and chanted down with pay your writers. Uh, it was a cool, inspiring moment, I think. Uh, a lot of things like that are happening throughout the country. And that was, you know, young people there as always, Gen Z saving the day for the rest of us. We're hoping for more things like that. And I think the more people know about what's going on, the more we're gonna see uh, pushing back from all walks of life outside of just the writer's union. So that is why one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you guys and take questions rather than just uh, chatting at you. I do before, or as we open it up to questions, one thing I'm very curious about uh, to get some engagement, 
I want folks to go into the chat right now, the group chat, and tell me, share with the group the name of what is one of your favorite shows? What is a favorite show that you're watching? It does not have to be on the air right now. It could be something that aired a long time ago. It could be something that you just finished. It could be something that you're excited about. But what is a show that you are really excited about and, and that you love, one of your favorites? And uh, I want to, I can maybe talk about how some of, some of those shows are going to be affected or not affected and how that will affect overall the strike. So with that, I will hand it back to Julie to, uh, to moderate uh, any questions you might have. Thank you. That was wonderful. That's a great synopsis. What, and I don't ask you to articulate their point of view as if you believe in it, but what would, what would the other side say is the reason for their position? So I think at a very minimum, uh, this at a very minimum, they would probably say that writers are an old school, you know, sort of an old school concept in a lot of ways. And like everything in life, uh, you need to modernize. And we are blessed with new technology that can in many ways eliminate a human touch on things. So uh, why not get rid of that human touch altogether if computers can do something just as well, or uh, we can save money. I think it is frankly a lot of what we see with union busting across the country. Unions are just not as strong as they used to be because people want to circumvent you know, uh, a human role in things. I think they also think there's success with a lot of reality shows right now. You see more so than you've ever seen probably reality shows taking off and those don't require writers in the same way. So they want to lean into those. Um, sorry if I'm doing too good a job of articulating my opponent's point of view and you guys are now opposed to the writer's <laughs> strike. We can edit that out uh, in, in post. Mm. <laughs> uh, we do have quite a few folks weighing in with their shows. Can you read them? Can you read the comments? Uh, yes, of course. Okay. So let me, so Succession, uh, Marvelous Miss Maisel, my very nerdy mom wrote 60 Minutes, which is just frankly pathetic. Um, <laughs> Two and a Half Men, Colbert, Raj wrote All That, which is a children's show from the mid-90s. Uh, Reservations, Ogs, Colbert, Only Murders in the Building. So this is very interesting. It's, um, there's a lot of variety in here. Let me mention a couple of shows. Succession, Marvelous Miss Maisel. A um, couple people wrote Ted Lasso. Every single one of those shows um, is in their final season or just ended their final season. Those shows will not be affected by a writer's strike because they're already uh, off the air. Big Bang Theory, that is a, uh, a rerun show. 30 Rock, rerun show. Parks and Rec, Schitt's Creek. Those shows have already aired. And I say that because, uh, you know, it, it's very interesting because, again, as I mentioned in the piece, you have access to every single one of those shows. So if this strike was going on 20, 30 years ago, um, we would, I think, hold more of the, the keys to the castle in terms of being able to limit what you're able to watch. Right now, any single one of you can go on you know, Netflix or Amazon or whatever and watch those old school shows that won't be affected by the strike. So you won't really feel the effects of the strike anytime soon. Now, there are some shows on here, Seth Meyers and Colbert, Shrinking, Only Murders in the Building, Reservation Dogs. These are shows that you 
want to see the others the next season of or you know that nightly show and we are withholding those thanks to the writer's strike sorry everyone the goal of a strike is to inflict uh some amount of pain uh on our users uh but that is our goal is if you're looking forward to those shows we want you to say all right i'm tired of having to wait uh for the next season of the bear or whatever for them to be making a, a new season uh let's let's get going here let's support uh our writers but again, as I mentioned in the piece, with uh, with the pandemic, they, there was already at least a two to three year pause on production. So we're all conditioned to now wait like several years between seasons. So again, that's going to make it kind of tough to really feel the effects of a writer's strike, uh, which means that we are playing a long game here. You know, I can't help but think, Raman, about the um, parallels to legacy media, legacy newspapers, you know, the shrinking of content due to changing market forces. And, but what's happened is all these pop-ups are taking place. For example, what we're doing now, it, you know, it, it, there's no barrier to entry. Um, there's no, there's no um, mega conglomerate that owns what, what we're doing. And so there's all kinds of things, probably way too many popping up due to technology. Do you see any movement in that? Could, could you take a show, for example, get a bunch of folks, create your own writer's room, let's say worst case scenario for, for the guild strike and create your own show and stream it? The short of it is I could, but it would not be helpful to the cause because uh, I would be doing something on my own and it would be outside the purview of the writer's guild. I would not yeah. have the ability to pay the writers I'm bringing in, um, you know, $4,000 a week uh, out of my own pocket. And then I would frankly be competing uh, with the writers union. And I guess I would be a scab and I would be circumventing. So I think we really, I think people encourage that creativity and we encourage creators. I say we, as if I'm anyone, uh, encourage uh, creators to get their start with, uh, posting videos directly to YouTube, making funny tweets, doing things that will get you on the scene and help you become a writer. But I think once you become a writer, you are pretty beholden to the the Writers Guild, um, the Writers Guild, uh, you know, sort of rules. And that would mean that it's not really helpful to anyone to do my own thing um, because it would sort of be uh, circumventing. You know, what journalism has right now uh, is Julie Gamick's Writers Retreat. So I think uh, what the Writers Union needs is our own Julie Gamick uh, to come in and save the day if anyone uh, knows someone out here. Hey, I passed the baton to you, buddy. Let's let's uh, let's talk. No, but seriously, um, in the worst case scenario, let's say that the Writers Guild does not prevail and all of this bad stuff starts happening and and the corporate uh, buhas think that they can create content without writers and without paying them a decent wage. Let's say that's happened. Okay, from then on, do you see possibilities for using new technology? I, in short, yes, I would not. I say that in that I would never underestimate the rampant creativity of the Writers Guild. And I think if there is an avenue 
to think outside the box or use any tool at their disposal, they will do it. But I think what you're asking about is like, it really truly is a like worst case scenario of, you know, what do we do at that point? But again, I just, I think that as far as the AMPTP is presenting their case, they are okay without us. So according to them, they'd be like, we don't care what writers do. Go off and do whatever you want. We can do this with AI. We can do this with non-union writers. Um, we can do this with reality television. So can we do that? Yeah, there's nothing stopping from us. But in theory, the folks we're up against think like don't care. So our job is to show them that they can't do their jobs without us. So I think, again, the things you're describing wouldn't necessarily help us uh, do what we're trying to do, okay. even though, yeah, it'd be a good creative outlet. I'm going to invite the uh, people on the call to ask questions. Just raise your hand with the emoji. If not, just type your question in the in the chat. But let's talk a little bit about your evolution as a comedy writer. Of course, you were always funny. And <laughs> At your, at your very youngest stage of life, you were always funny. You always had a presence about you. Eight-year-old Raman could command a room in uh, downtown Manhattan full of, full of uh, intellectuals, just like that. And uh, that's a gift you've had to, to own a room and to communicate with humor. How did that happen? How do, how, how do you think you became Raman Borsellino? Uh, well... Thank you very much. I think I it was literally the first thing I think I talked about uh, on here today. My parents, uh, it just both of them. Um, I are are blessed with good humor, and it was something that was instilled in me from both my mom and dad and older brother Raj uh, for my entire life. So I was just born into the right family. Uh, what can I say? It's something that. Not only do I think my family has in spades, but was something that was very important for them to foster um, in me and uh, encourage and validate. And I'm just so lucky to come from a family that valued that and that it was important when I think they saw any creative sparks to say, okay, we're immediately going to sign you up for like an acting camp or even like a clown camp my mom signed me up for uh, once. And I don't, I, you know, I don't think other, I don't think every family values that to the same degree, which is fine, but I've been uh, fortunate to have that. Now, I did try and um, go into politics. I worked on a couple Obama campaigns and in the Obama administration. The problem is I was still funny then. Uh, and when I was sitting in meetings at the Department of the Interior about land use policy, I don't think anyone needed to hear my uh, bullshit jokes. Uh, so, uh, eventually I moved out to LA, um, to work on what some might say is a better fit for me, but frankly, I think, uh, my sweet spot lies in between the two, um, being able to think about serious policy issues and things that are important to people that they may not care about and present them in a way that I think uses humor and breaks through to an audience that, might not otherwise be engaged by watching my mom's favorite show, 60 Minutes. 
point well taken. And actually, I read someplace that a lot of people get their news and info, political news and information from comedy shows. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah, I saw a bumper sticker once that said, um, uh, I get my I get my news from Comedy Central and I get my comedy from Fox News. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, uh, tell us about some of the things you've had in your background, some of the some of the successes, some of the challenges. How hard is it to do what you're doing and, and to be on this path? I'm sure there are some people that think you should have been a lawyer or you should have been a this or you should have been a that. Fortunately, not in your family. But what what kind of path are you on and how hard is it? Um, it's a great question. You know, again, with my ability to to make people laugh, when my brother got into Yale Law School, I told him I kind of wanted to go to Yale Law School too. And I made him laugh. So that was, you know, a good example of, I think, my ability to, uh, to and he's laughing now. Like, you don't get to laugh at that, dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I tried different things. It, it didn't necessarily work for me. Look, uh, I've gone almost half an hour talking and I have not yet name dropped Cal Penn, which I'm like legally obligated to do because I have this great mentor out here, um, Indian actor who I met on the Obama campaign trail when I was 17. Uh, funny enough, this is a very funny story. Uh, Cal was on the show House and there was a writer strike in 2007, the last time we went on strike. So he had tons of free time. And uh, he said to the Obama campaign, I have an unlimited amount of time right now. I really like Senator Obama and would love to help his campaign. What can I do? And they said, if you really want to help us, the Iowa caucuses are coming up. We would love for you to travel to Iowa and engage young people in the political process. And they sent him to Iowa. And the first stop he made was Roosevelt High School, where I was the president of the Roosevelt Students for Obama organization. And I introduced him and planned an event for him. And he became a part of my life. That was in 2007. That was 16 years ago. And that is what uh, put me on the path ultimately to, you know, writing comedy in a way that, yes, I've always valued comedy and my family's always fostered it. But I don't think any of us truly knew like how one would end up in Hollywood and so how to like actually pursue that. And so it's something I'd never thought about seriously. Um, but then having this mentor in my corner and friend um, help me do that is what made the difference. So a couple things with that. One is, I think a lot of people would love a, a mentor and a connection like that. And I just, it became a right place at the right time. I was 17 years old uh, in the comfort of my own high school and ended up making this connection that would change my life. And so I was very fortunate and I'm in a position of privilege that I was able to move out to LA and pursue that, pursue comedy because I had this connection. The other point of that though, is that this fell in my lap because I was pursuing something that I was passionate about, which was politics and campaigning and, you know, trying to get Obama elected president. So I think the lesson at the end of the day is um, maybe you'll get lucky, but just do what you're passionate about and pursue. And that was what I was doing. And then it led to another great opportunity me about the craft. Um, how important was your your gig in Chicago, your your uh, second city uh, experience? Did they did you learn a lot there or was it basically underscoring what you already knew? 
But what, 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 how long was that process? Um, it's a good question. So what Julie is referring to is in between political campaigns, I had a few months, you know, of unemployment and I just decided, you know what, I am going to go to Chicago for a few months and take classes at the second city. I've never done anything like that. And again, great position of privilege that I was in that most people don't have. Uh, Julie said, Julie and Richard said, please stay in our apartment, use our apartment, which is like incredible. No one is able to do that. So I had a free apartment in Chicago in Wilmette and I was able to commute every day to take second city classes. Now the question of these second city classes, which mind you, yes, second city is incredibly prestigious. Uh, these are classes that anyone could sign up for off the street. So I didn't have to like audition or I wasn't like invited to do it. It was just me being interested in it, deciding to do it. And it was the first time in my life I was truly surrounded with people who wanted to do the exact same thing as me with regards to entertainment and comedy. And I just thought, wow, I didn't know this existed. I didn't think you could just be in this little group of people who want the exact same things in that regard. And I think even more importantly than that, I was paying for these classes out of my own pocket. And it was the first time I ever truly invested financially in this. And so just that feeling of, you know, I'm spending hundreds of dollars on these classes. I am officially trying hard to do this and I'm officially making an investment in myself. Uh, I felt like I crossed over in that way, uh, in a way that there was sort of no going back from. And so again, Julie did not ask me to, uh, to plug her writer's retreat, but I do see a parallel in a lot of folks just making that time investment, making that financial investment and saying, some people, this is the first time I'm truly investing in writing and something I've always wanted to do. And I think no matter what you get out of that experience in terms of the hard skills you learn from it and the people you meet, you're investing in yourself. And that is like the first major step uh, towards pursuing something seriously. And for me, once I did that, there was just no going back. I ended up still working in politics for a little while, but my hope was that I would go back long-term to this thing I had already started in Chicago. And it so happened that my job ended when uh, uh, President Obama's uh, successor uh, put his hand on the Bible um, in January uh, 2017. And I thought, I don't have a job in DC anymore. This is it. This is the chance to pursue something different. And so I moved out to LA and I slept on a friend's couch. Uh, there, I. I think the the single biggest thing um, in the future is if Julie Gamak ever wants to buy an apartment in LA, Julie and Richard, that I can sleep uh, on the couch of, then that would have made it even better. Uh, but I had to rely on some friends and it took a while to, to grind it out. And, you know, I spent a few years working jobs that were not uh, related to writing, but it was just being in LA and, and um, making connections and learning things. And, Again, a position of privilege, my mom telling me point blank, this is something you're passionate about. I want you to pursue this and go out and do it. And if you fail, I will help you. I will help with rent if you need it. I will help with a car if you need it. And I'm very proud of the fact that I, you know, have been able to handle rent and all that stuff on my own for as long as I've been out here. Uh, maybe she helped with my car a little bit. Uh, although if she read the piece, she'll see that it's severely dented now. So sorry about that. Uh, you act surprised as if you didn't read the piece, which is incredibly <laughs> troubling. 
get used to it. <laughs> All right, we do have some great questions in here. I could monopolize the uh, conversation, but I won't. Uh, Ken Quinn, you have something you'd like to say. Uh, Brikes, Oakley, uh, let's see who else uh, can't be. Oh, and Julie Russell Stewart, uh, who wants to go first? Whose mic is off? Mine. Okay, let's hear you. Yeah, so hey, congratulations on uh, your union action. I'm a, uh, I used to say when I worked for Governor Ray, I was the only member of his staff who wasn't a Republican and was a dues paying union member, which I still am close to 50 years. Um, that I am, yeah, and I, I'm also, uh, as, as your mom, I think knows, from the Bronx, like your dad. And so, you know, we all rely on our DNA. And so somewhere in you are some of that Bronx DNA uh, that uh, I think adds to both, uh, you know, your your uh, abilities and comedy and that. But I'm just sort of imagining if uh, the uh, you know the the people you're uh, opposing got their way and you were down to work being paid by the day. Uh, all the writers are standing out in the corner the way illegal immigrants do in New York now, waiting for some contractor to come by and pay them fifty dollars a day. Uh, you know, for you want to come out and write for us, or maybe there's an Uber delivery service to get uh, a, a sketch delivered to your home with somebody coming and uh, standing on your front porch. So there have to be some uh, parallels to that New York Bronx life existence that you can draw on while you do your stand-up gigs or or whatever. But keep the faith and hang in there; uh, you will prevail. Hey Ken, maybe we can have a Uber so Uber um, head of the uh, World Food Prize. You know, just pick a day. Somebody can I, have I, a day as head of the I, World Food Prize. I, yeah, I, I I think so. And yeah, maybe you can come in October and do a little uh, stand up about our our new laureate and doing demining. Uh, there are you know got got to be some ways to work this in. That sounds great. I. Uh... I would I would love to think that the strike will be over by October, but who knows? I could still have some uh, free time on my hands to uh, to come in for that. All right, Artis Rice, you have a you have a question for Raj and Raman. Are you uh, you're muted? Go ahead and unmute if you would, please. Um, I guess I just mentioned me. I'm not sure. Um, I'm the one with the hearing loss. Oh, okay. Go ahead, Julie. Okay, um, my name is Julie, and I'm chair of Disability Caucus for the Iowa Democratic Party, um, and I'm also a poet and an artist. I'm a printmaker, so I'm very familiar with the idea that creatives do not get paid enough, and that people think being creative is just like your talent, and it's amazing, and lots of great things happen, but you have to absolutely work hard at it. And some people don't understand that creative process. And I think it's similar for poets, writers, artists, and all that. Um, and my question really is just what project did you work on um, where you were able to um, bring in the social issues and address that with comedy? I just kind of wanted to know what your favorite um, one was that you worked on. Thank you. Hey, Julie, thank you so much for the question and for your work with the Democratic Party. God knows we 
need that right now in the state of Iowa, as I say from this uh, liberal bastion in LA. Um, so one thing I realized pretty early on being out here is the impact that you can make through this industry in a way that you can't through others. And so it was so weird to think about how I had spent so many years and hours and so much time knocking on doors and making phone calls for, you know, democratic candidates. And I think, again, that's something that absolutely can't be replaced. I think the power of campaigns and human interaction is so important. And I'm so glad I did that. And I will continue to do that every election cycle. But then to also see that you write a piece for The Daily Show or something else, and it immediately gets millions of viewers on it. And frankly, the idea that I could try my hand at political messaging um, by voter to voter contact. Uh, and then I could also write something and get it in the right place and see it on air. And it would frankly get to so many more viewers in the latter case uh, than, you know, more so than all the work I'd done trying to, to reach people, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. They're both very valuable, but it was so cool to see I'm in a completely different profession, but if the end goal is to inform, especially young people about social issues um, and important issues about democracy, there are multiple avenues to do this. So for me, the things I've been most proud of are the pieces of political comedy that I did. Um, I did a week of The Daily Show when Cal Penn was hosting, guest hosting. He brought me on as his writer. He and I created our own show um, called Cal Penn Approves This Message. It was on Freeform in uh, leading up to the 2020 election. And we pitched it to a few different networks and we got offers from Vice and Freeform. And it felt like a good fit for Vice because Vice has typically had a lot of, you know, a little more lefty content. But Freeform is a Disney channel um, designed specifically for young people. And it's a lot of people in their 20s. And so our goal was, let's put it on a channel where people are less likely to seek it out in hopes that it makes a bigger difference because the audience watching was just watching some Disney movie and they forgot to change the channel. And now they're watching Cal Penn interview Hillary Clinton and a comic piece that I wrote about uh, healthcare and Medicare for all. And so to see that make such a difference, I think, um, leading into the 2020 election is something that made me political, um, particularly proud. And to see that political action in a, in a, an avenue other than a campaign, um, was really cool. And I was very, uh, excited about that. I also worked on the show called a little late with Lily Singh. And when Lily hired me, she said point blank in her interview, uh, I am not a particularly political person. You clearly have a very political background. Why do you want to work on this show uh, knowing that I just don't want to do much political stuff? And I gave some bullshit answer about how, uh, you know, oh, I just, you know, I'm fine taking a break from politics. Meanwhile, I was scheming like, oh, we're going to make this show so political and reach viewers that otherwise weren't, you know, gonna... and then meanwhile, Lily's executive producer, like, called me offline and she was like, yeah, by the way, I want to make Lily like maybe slightly more political. So I hope you will continue to push the entire show in that direction. And to her credit, we did so many sketches about Biden and Trump and about she did very serious monologues about, you know, important issues, um, farmers protests in India and things that 
you know, I'd like to think I helped move the needle and got content on a show that maybe otherwise wasn't planning on on having so much politics to it and, and making something of a difference there. You remember some of the bits you've written? Can you can you remember them off the top of your head? Both for yeah. No. yeah. Besides the uh, the Earth Day sketch I wrote about a Beverly Hills plastic surgeon who uh, was eco friendly. Uh, yeah, yeah, eliminated yeah. Plastic. Yeah, we heard that one. Keep okay. going. A lot of it were were serious. So you know, with every late night comic, there is a serious um, there's a serious component to. They're not necessarily serious, but they tell jokes. So Lily would would we would we would pitch ideas, topics in the news that were long form things, and we would uh, inject them with jokes. So one was uh, anti trans laws, particularly one in the state of Arkansas. Um, and so we we wrote a lot. I wrote a long monologue about that, and you know had plenty of things, plenty of. Uh, plenty of jokes inside of that but that was something I was proud of on oh on on the show I did with Cal Penn I wrote a piece a field piece about um how conservatives think that the solution to healthcare is just to put up a GoFundMe and have your neighbors chip in to pay when someone you know has cancer and how it's such a uh, uh putting a band-aid over a bullet hole situation that it's not going to fix anything long term but we thought what if we use their own idea and um, instead of Medicare for all, we just call it GoFundMe for all. And we say that everyone has a GoFundMe set up uh, that their neighbors can chip into to help with their medical problems. And so we went around and like pitched this idea. We ended up pitching it to Mark Cuban as if it was an episode of Shark Tank. Uh, and he said, wait, aren't you just describing Medicare for all? Good, 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 good. Yeah, tell us about the, uh, oh, I okay. Well, I'm going to ask one more question and then go to the chat questions and, and uh, reader participation. But tell us about writing for the White House for the for the last uh, White House Correspondents' Dinner, Biden's speech. I, thank you. I was very proud of that. Um, I, uh, I think it is like one of those coveted things that a, a comedy writer dreams of to get at least one joke in the White House Correspondents' Dinner monologue. And I did get at least uh, one joke in the White House Correspondents' Dinner monologue. The way they do it is they reach out to heads of different late night shows and they ask um, the writer's rooms to solicit. So they'll get a dock of a few hundred jokes that come in from Daily Show writers, from Colbert writers, and they looped Cal and I in to help once they'd gotten a lot of those jokes to help with the actual formulating of it and um, of the of the monologue and to submit our own jokes. And it was so cool. It was super fun. I did not get a ton of original jokes in, but I was able to get some that other people had written to sort of suggest we should put this here and this is a good one. And maybe you weren't thinking about using this one, but I think it would go a long way. And then of course, getting my own um, joke in. And, you know- What was it? What was the joke? If you're a truly humble writer, then, you know, you won't share what your exact joke was because it's a group effort. I'm not a truly humble writer, so I'll tell you what the joke was. Um, it was the day that uh, Kevin McCarthy had come out with his own um, debt ceiling proposal and just, you know, the worst version of that bill that they um, that they uh, that they pitched uh, that they that they uh, I think the House had even voted on or he'd proposed it. And I said, Kevin McCarthy is rich coming out here uh, with something that guts, you know, health care and veterans care and, you know, social programs. 
the last time uh, the House voted on something um, this out of touch, uh, this dumb, uh, it took them uh, 14 tries to finally pass it, uh, <laughs> which was, of course, uh, McCarthy's own speakership. That's right. Thank you. All right. OK, Kathy Obradovich has a question. Um, Kathy, you can either ask in real time or I can read it for you. She asks, how much freedom do you have if your bosses on a show want something you don't agree with or runs against your values? I really appreciate that question. And I have never been in a situation in which uh, a boss made me write something that I didn't agree with or wasn't interested in. Um, and I think part of it, that speaks to that speaks to how I've been you know, pretty fortunate uh, to to be in writers' rooms that are supportive and that have not put me in a position of, you know, having to write something I don't agree with. It also speaks to the very important aspect of writers' rooms being collaborative, and uh, a writers' room at its best is a team of diverse opinions that you know function very well as a group. And by diverse opinions, I don't necessarily mean both sidesy. Like, I think writers' rooms very seldom have like. Republicans in them. When I took a class at, when I took a class at the Second City, I took one that was taught by the founder of the Onion, and the first question I asked was, "How often uh, did you see conservatives in the Onion writers' rooms?" And he said, "I can't think of a single time in the history of the Onion that we had like a straight-up uh, conservative in the writers' room." And I think, uh, and obviously this is an opinion, but he said, "I think uh, conservatives don't frequently understand satire in the same way that liberals do." Um, so take that or leave it. No one has to agree with that. But I think there's questions of how far left you want to go, uh, or how moderate you want to go. Um, and there were, when we were doing the daily show, then there were plenty of opinions that were frankly more anti-Biden than I tend to go. Um, and so I didn't agree with all that. I found, I found some of that to be just overly cynical. Um, but there have also been more moderate things that I wouldn't write or I wouldn't agree with, but I've never been forced to write any of that stuff that I don't agree with. And I've been very fortunate about that. How important do you think it is that you have had political experience to be a comedy writer who touches on policy? Um, I think it helps. I, I think plenty of people have plenty of people pay attention and have, and have ideas about, how policy work probably, and pr frankly, probably understand it even better than I do. But I think, again, I am less prone to cynicism because I've seen the power of young people knocking on doors and doing really hard work and taking Obama from being down 30 polls in the Iowa caucus, uh, you know, in the Iowa caucuses and, you know, 30 points down in the polls uh, early on in 2007 to ultimately winning. So I think I have a very hopeful attitude towards a lot of things. And that I think is something that may separate me from, again, some jaded comedy writers who believe in the same things as me, but may not be as optimistic about the ability to actually affect change. So I think, um, and, you know, who knows, maybe it may be a little naive of me to some degree, but when there are certain things that Biden doesn't accomplish, I will be very critical when I think it's merited. You know, when you see a kid die in ICE custody, I will absolutely hold the president accountable. But when there are certain things like 
why didn't he blow up the filibuster or pass this? It's just the end of the day, I believe in how our electoral process works to some degree and see that we didn't have the votes that Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema weren't going to allow it. And so I don't think there's anything that the president could have done um, differently in that situation. So that's just an example of how I might see things differently, having worked on campaigns and having maybe more uh, a pragmatic um, feel to it. And it's also very cool to see a lot of folks on this chat who, you know, Kathy Obradovich obviously just asked a question. Uh, Chuck Offenberger uh, knows his politics. Dave Dave Lesh, uh, you know, a, a political titan in the state. Uh, Ann Seltzer was on this, the best pollster in the country. It's really cool to see. <laughs> and by the way, Artis. There's please, Laura, Laura Bielan, I see too. Laura Bielan um, has a question leaving. for you, but Artis, if you, if you want to unmute, go ahead and make your comment, please. Oh, I just wanted to say, I'm really glad to see you. Uh, both of the Borth, Borsalino brothers in middle school participated in peer review court down at the Polk County Courthouse, where we had uh, juvenile offenders who admitted to some minor crime. And then we brought in kids in middle and high school to be the jurors and to be the attorneys. And I hope that maybe that experience sparked a little bit of uh, uh, feeling for justice too. So I, I'm really glad you're both here today. Thank you. you know, I think about I think about that a lot with issues of criminal justice reform. I think back to that about how, you know, the power of from an early age, understanding that and understanding, you know, having what is truly the, in, in the purest sense, a jury of your peers, uh, you know, thinking about your best interests. It was so cool. Thank you for that. Thank you. Okay. We had one more question. Chuck Offenberger, did you have a comment? Because you were unmuted a minute ago. If you if you have something to say, we'd love to hear from you, unless you're driving. I think you might. No, you're muted. Um, one question. Here he is. Go ahead, Chuck. Oh, Raman, great to hear you and great to see all everybody on this call. I just as I listened to your fascinating career, one thing occurred to me. Do you think you got a long show, long form, you know, whole show or play in your pocket at some point? You're I thank uh, thank you for asking that. I um, I'm currently working on my second um, my second uh, pilot, like you know, thirty minute comedy script. But the first one was about the Iowa State Fair, and that I wrote, and I've used it as a writing sample to shop around, and hopefully, I can use that to transition into a more longer form. Uh, you know, at least to have that possibility, because there's so few uh, late night jobs, variety jobs. Um, but uh, yes, I've written I've written a pilot. It's about the Iowa State Fair. It is a political comedy about the Iowa State Fair. And I hope to do something with that, maybe get it made someday. And I'm working on, again, that transition to potentially uh, different style of writing. And I think one informs the other, you know, being able to write more long form um, to be able to infuse quicker jokes into that, which quicker jokes is what I sort of have experience with. So Raman, I'm going to ask you a question, and if the audio is good enough and your answer is good enough, maybe Rick and I will use it in our podcast. And the question is, what the hell has happened to Iowa? Uh, it is it is so great that um, you guys wouldn't full on invite me as a guest on your podcast, but you said if you give a good 30 second snippet and something else, then maybe I'll use it. I, I'm just so touched that you asked that, Julie, uh, and my mom. Oof. 
what the hell has happened to Iowa? I think back to Van Jones' famous term, uh, white lash. Uh, it just, I don't know. I appreciate that you guys are doing the Lord's work, um, but let's my, do I have, do I have the answer to it? Not necessarily, but I, I hope that, uh, I hope that I can use political comedy to someday move the needle in Iowa and get people thinking differently by watching an episode of whether it's the daily show or some new format that we haven't necessarily thought of. Uh, but I think, I think young people are not sticking around the state. And I think all, all across the country, you see young people are the ones who are really moving the needle politically. If Gen Z hadn't turned out in the numbers uh, that they did in the midterms, we absolutely would have gotten our asses kicked. Uh, instead, the Democrats had a really surprisingly good showing. And Iowa is not prioritizing young people. And they are not doing things that would make young people want to stick around and be a part of the community. And so they're losing that. And instead, you see a re reliance on older, whiter people who want to maintain a, a different way of life, I think. And we are shutting out the people who are most likely to be progressive. And frankly, maybe that's by design because the people in power don't want to give up that power. And so they don't want to uh, empower a group of people who might vote against their interests and way of life. You think it's sparking more activism by those who plan to stay? I do, but you can only do so much. I mean, I think after a certain point, it feels defeating to see, to just see progressives get their ass kicked one election after another uh, in the state. It's really tough to maintain that enthusiasm, which again, um, there's almost sort of this parallel of on a picket line, you can only do it for so long if you feel like you're not making a difference. So uh, it's, uh, I don't know, it's, but not to be, again, I don't ever want to be too cynical. And so you see victories like um, Kimberly Graham's in Polk County, and you see people shifting their focus to, okay, if our entire state government belongs to conservatives, let's start at the local government. And so I think it takes a little time to reorient and shift that strategy. And I think that's starting to happen in Iowa. And hopefully we'll start to see some more effects of that. It just means having to change the mindset a little bit about what's possible. We'll give Laura Bellin the last question. Laura? Thank, thank you. I'm sorry. I was walking and I had it on my phone and it, the connection kept going in and out. So I don't know if you've already answered this question, possibly when my connection went out. But I was wondering whether you ever wrote a joke that was included in a show that just like landed wrong or people misunderstood and caused problems for you and how you dealt with that. Oh, man, what a question to end on. Um, well, look, I'm still here. I haven't been canceled just yet. Um, I mean, the honest question is, uh, I think that's, again, a nice thing about a writer's room is that there is strength in numbers, that I've been in writer's rooms where we got blamed for some off-color jokes, um, but no one would ever know uh, exactly who made that joke. Uh, that said, if you want to like pull my brother aside or uh, some of my close friends and get the real dirt on uh, offensive jokes I've made, um, then uh, then then you can find out the truth. But no, I, I I I will say I think that to some degree my political sensibilities have helped in that regard. That coming from a world of politics, 
um, I have a decent sense of what types of things would get me in trouble and what types of things would be uh, be inappropriate. And so I think uh, I uh, have been been very scared about ever crossing that line and, and have been pretty fortunate to uh, to avoid ever getting in trouble. But, um, you know, ask me again in five years uh, if uh, if I've been canceled and we'll see. Raman, thank you so much. Is there anything people on this call can do to be in support of you and the Writers Guild? Write letters or what can what can people do? What can citizens, viewers do? Um, if any of you uh, have children graduating and David Zaslov is speaking uh, at the commencement ceremony, please encourage them to chant him down with uh, things like pay your writers. Uh, but in all honesty, I think every piece of social media, every conversation, um, things like this. I'm just glad, my hope is that I was able to shed some light on some issues that people may have known less about and continue getting out there and talking about it. And it may not be the writer's union, but support any union. Um, I think all unions are in the same boat right now in terms of fighting um, to survive. So whatever union you may be closest to, show them some support, vote for candidates who will um, support and protect unions, and that has an effect of supporting all unions. So that'll help the Writers Guild. Well, Raman, thank you, thank you so again. We love you. We watch your career with great interest, and it's just a delight to have a whole hour with you. Thank you. We'll have you back, hopefully soon. <laughs>